You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor Podcast Network. All right. How are you guys doing? Welcome to the Love Thy Neighbor Podcast Network. I'm your host, Anthony Wilson. And today we are going to dive into a great discussion with a doctor in uh, uh, Jewish and uh, studies and biblical studies and a scholar uh, that has written books and teaches and lives out uh, what he's learned. And so we will dive into our discussion. But before we get in, I definitely want to thank uh, all of you that support the Love Thy Neighbor podcast network, um, your, your gifts and your prayers. Um, have allowed us to continue to do this podcast. Uh, 2021 was an amazing year, and we expect to uh, do much greater things in 2022. <clears throat> if you're listening to this by way of podcast, please make sure that you subscribe uh, so that you get all of uh, the podcast posts. If you're watching this on YouTube, uh, please make sure you hit that like bu- button and the subscribe button so that you can get every episode that we put out. And so I want to thank you again for tuning in. Uh, We are going to dive into a powerful discussion about the second temple period. Some people uh, call it the intertestamental period or second temple Judaism. Um, But we're going to hear from an expert, uh, Dr. Uh, Juan Marcos, uh, and we're going to welcome him to the show. Uh, we've been trying to connect for a while. We finally have, and I'm excited about that. How are you, Dr. Juan? I'm doing well, and I'm, I'm very happy and privileged to be part of your show. Um, when I first got your uh, initial message, I was excited because this is a topic that is a very passionate area of study for me. Um, I spent a tremendous amount of time on it as part of my uh, academic work as well as religious uh, studies, and uh, anytime anybody raises that topic, I'm I'm there to talk about it because it's just, I think it's extremely important for as we as we mentioned before for different religious traditions, not just uh, Judaism, of course. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, uh, Doc, Doctor Juan, I, what uh, could you tell us just a little bit about you? You already mentioned that you know uh, you're you're a scholar, <laughs> uh, but what else do you want people to know about you? Uh, well, I'm, I'm very happily married, um, and I have three boys, uh, nine, seven, and two. And uh, I'm an engineer by day, but um, I'm the rabbi of uh, two small, we call them chavorot. Uh, they're like basically home synagogues, so we meet in two different homes. And uh, that's a big passion for me. Uh, just I, I love uh, the synagogue liturgy and, and the, the, you know, what you know, people call worship and just everything being involved with that. Of course, it's in Hebrew. It's, it's something that's ancient. Um, but, uh, I have my full-time job, but, you know, the other passion for me is writing, uh, because in many ways it's, it's just, um, I get to put all those things that I learned into a form that people can access, whether it's an audiobooks or, you know, Kindle or whatever it is. And I think that, you know, you get to impact people that you never meet. Yeah. And then occasionally you'll hear back, you'll get a message and you'll, you'll get a text or something. And I'm like, oh, I just read your book. And, and, and sometimes they'll ask questions and sometimes they'll say, well, I don't agree with this, but you know, can you help me understand? And, and I, it's just very fulfilling. And it's just a passion that uh, if you have it, you understand what I mean. And uh, just sharing that information that I was privileged to learn is, is very exciting for me. 
Yeah, that's 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 amazing. And, uh, you know, and I, and I thank you for your work, because we, we need people taking uh, what they've learned and sharing it and um, kind of putting it into this huge pot of information that's out there. And when someone studies something meticulously, um, it gives a, a great opportunity for those of us that are interested in certain topics to learn from someone who's put in the time and effort. Um, you mentioned something, you know, sometimes people disagree. Uh, I, you know, how do you deal with that, you know, as a person that you know, like this, this is what I've studied. I put in years of study and someone just says, well, I disagree with that. You know, how do you, <laughs> how do you deal with that? You know, knowing all that you put into your studies, it's not like you just woke up and just came up with a theory. You actually put in a lot of time and effort to study it. Yes. Um, well, I think that one of the one of the things that helped me is um, I was very fortunate to find programs that were, I think, geared toward people that were professionals in other areas. So that they knew that you had like your full time position, but I would go to these places as we, as we talked about. Um, but they were very in, intense uh, academically. So the, the schools that I went to, they, they were Jewish schools, but they were also academic. And so you had to defend your, your, your thesis, right? Your, your idea, your proposition. Um, and I remember when I was going through my dissertation, um, it took me three years, you know, I was doing it part-time and I would get back these uh, hundreds of pages that were edited and marked up and, you know, professors and rabbis were, you know, critiquing and you didn't prove this. And I mean, there was so many, it was a very humbling experience. Let's put it that way. And it wasn't an issue of um, you had to agree with them. You, it's just you had to prove and you had to show why you had come up with this determination or this view. And I tell people all the time, it, it's just, it's a very good process. I mean, you have to, humbling is, I have to go back to that word. I mean, it's just a process that you have to learn. And so um, I don't have a problem when people disagree. What I try to tell people is um, I'm going to lay out uh, the, the facts that I, that I know. Um, and then there are different possibilities to interpret them, of course, right? This is how we have different religious traditions, but we, we have to sort of look at what we can both agree on. Um, and then we sort of propose our views and then we, we get the evidence and say, well, this is what I have to support this view. Um, and as long as there can be that, that uh, respect and, and an, uh, an approach that recognizes that, okay, we have archaeology, we have texts, we have history. Um, I think if you have like a meaningful dialogue, it's about the exchange. And uh, maybe I didn't consider a perspective, you know, scholars often disagree with each other. And it's part of that process of, of investigating and, and learning more. Yeah, that is that is that is that is amazing because you know what 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 I've learned in my in my limited experience is that it all depends on someone's approach, right? Different scholars take different, you know, interpretive approaches. You know, someone may come from a philosophical point of view, some come from a theological point of view, some come from a historical point of view, and when they're coming together and they're having discussions, they are bringing nuances to each other that may be valuable, you know, if you're willing to, like you said, sit down and kind of listen, like, okay, I never considered that. Let me put that into the calculator and see what comes out, you know, with that. So I think that's, that's a great process in, in any uh, discipline. I think so. I think that would help uh, even, you know, um, just in common communication, just being able to talk to people who think differently. Um, and I think, you know, as you being a rabbi, 
uh, living in the United States, <laughs> you know, you probably come across a, a lot of people who think differently, you know, yes. than, than you do. Uh, and so what you said about being humble, <laughs> I am 100% in agreement with humility might be the untapped superpower. <laughs> you know, humble people can get a lot farther in a conversation than prideful people. <laughs> you know. Well, um, I can say one thing, you know, our, our family of Sephardic Jews, we have a background of Spain and Portugal uh, in the Mediterranean, like Morocco and so forth. And, and in the medieval period, there were, of course, Christians, there were Jews, but there were also Muslims and in the peninsula. And this interchange, it could be problematic sometimes. I mean, obviously there was violence, but there was also an exchange of ideas. And um, one thing that, that Islam brought was a rediscovery of ancient Greek texts and histories and things like that. And they sort of put that on the, on the table and Christian and Jewish scholars wouldn't, you know, they would translate these documents into their respective languages. And at least, uh, you know, intellectually, there could be some kind of interaction. Right. And I think talk about America, um, it's the same thing. Like we live in a pluralistic society. Um, and I think that, you know, the Jews, when we first came to the United States, they were happy. I mean, they were privileged to be here. Um, and they recognized, they, they recognized that in, in Christianity, there was uh, a love for the biblical texts. And I think they sort of, you know, they found some common ground with that. And I think that um, when you can find that common ground, uh, you, you have to have respect, you have to have humility. And that can really open up, you know, these kinds of exchanges, right? You can dialogue, you can uh, learn something. And, and it doesn't mean that a person has to be completely in sync. But as long as you can have that open conversation, I think it resolves uh, so much anger and hatred that we see, you know, uh, throughout different parts of the world where there's no, there's no tolerance, you know, just for a basic discussion. So, yes, yes, I, I agree. I agree. Thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> so, um, let's get a little bit deeper into our discussion. Could you do kind of a brief overview of what we mean by second temple Judaism or the second temple period? I mean, what, you know, for the lay person that may be just now being introduced to that, what could you give us kind of a, a brief uh, overview of what that is? Yes. Yes. I think most people, most of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with uh, King David. Mm -hmm. uh, or um, So what we have in ancient Israel is we have uh, these independent tribes. You know, they're, they're, they're tied to each other by an ancient uh, uh, history. They're, they're, you know, genetically connected to each other. They have a family history. Uh, but in many ways, they're sort of like independent states. You know, they, they don't necessarily get along all the time. You see that in the biblical texts. Um, but they have these external threats, the Philistines and the Moabites, the Ammonites, all these different groups that are there. Um, and so Saul comes on the scene and he becomes the first uh, king of what we call the United Monarchy. So there's the, the, the 12 tribes come together to some extent because there's always some resistance. And they say, OK, we'll back this individual really as a chieftain. You know, his purpose is to make war against these people, you know, to defend the people of Israel. Uh, and as we see, even in the book of Samuel, sometimes his power is, is limited. Um, and even people, even Israelites aren't necessarily on board with his power, you know, because the king is going to have to tax. He's going to have to uh, take people into the army, you know, things of that nature. 
so there's always that that issue of power and and uh, you know the lay people and and what they have to give up. But he becomes the first king of of Israel, and then of course we know the story of David, where um, in some sense he's an usurper, but of course from the biblical standpoint he's been anointed by by we would say Hashem by God to become the next king. And under David, um, the, the the kingdom of Israel reaches some measure of stability. And under Solomon, his son, it really reaches its its greatest uh, extent. There's a measure of peace. Uh, Solomon is an international, um, uh, you could say, uh, strategist. You know, he has you know marriages with a lot of different uh, women from different kingdoms. And and part of the reason is that secures stability because he has bride from uh, Egypt. All the major powers. And when you at the time when you had a wife. Uh, from these different powers, there's a measure of peace. You can often see that in, you know, ancient Rome or, you know, any other history, when you have two groups of people that fight each other, they exchange hostages or they have a marriage relationship. And so that brings a measure of stability. So, so the, the, uh, the Israelite kingdom reaches its extent of, um, farthest extent under Solomon, but under his son Rehoboam, there is a division that takes place. Um, and that division causes there to be uh, essentially a, a civil war to some extent with the northern tribes becoming the kingdom of Israel. And the southern kingdom, of course, is the kingdom of Judah. But it's not just comprised of Judah. Many, many people make that mistake. Uh, there's the tribe of Benjamin. The mm-hmm. tribe of Sin is actually located in the boundaries of Judah. So you actually have three tribes. And then you have uh, some Levites and, and what we call the Kohanim, the priests, uh, that are still there because the, the temple is in Jerusalem. Um, and this issue is, is something that sometimes people don't understand. Uh, the North is concerned because, you know, they still have one history with, with their Southern brothers, if you will, um, because the temple is in Jerusalem, right? That's the focal point of Israelite worship uh, at the time. And so you still have people going to Jerusalem and, of course, bringing their korbanot, their sacrifices, their, their, uh, their, their taxes, if you will, their temple tax. Um, and so the North go sort of in a different direction because they want to set up their own cultic centers. They want to have their own places to worship because they don't want there to be, um, you know, at the time there's a, there's not a difference between politics and religion. Right. It's, it's, so eventually these two powers are, are separate and uh, to the East of them, there are powers that are growing. There's the Assyrian empire. Uh, and of course we know this from history uh, independent of the Bible, but the Bible also tells us that the Assyrian empire begins to, you know, stretch out towards the West. And one of the things that they do is that eventually they will make the Northern Kingdom a vassal kingdom. So the vassal kingdom have to pay taxes, they have to pay you know, fealty, you know, they might have to fight on behalf of the Assyrians. Eventually that doesn't work out. Um, the Assyrians begin to transfer population from the Northern Kingdom to different parts of their empire. And their thinking is that uh, if we move, if we displace people to one place and then we replace them with another group of people, those people won't rebel because they're not in their, um, you know, normal environment, right? They're just different language, different place. Uh, So they have like this unique policy. Uh, And then eventually they end the Northern Kingdom of Israel as an independent political entity. Uh, The Southern Kingdom, and this happens in 722 BCE or BC. uh, Well, the Southern Kingdom continues to exist for quite some time. Um, It's not until 586 where a different power, the, the Babylonians, uh, come to the fray. And what they do is initially, the kingdom of Judah is also a vassal kingdom. But, you know, if you're a king, and you're subordinate to another king, that's not a good position. Uh, 
of course, they're going to expect things to do. Uh, you have to do things for them. And, and you see this throughout history. So eventually they try to rebel and they fail. Um, and this is sort of the time of Jeremiah, the prophet and, and so forth. Um, so the, the Babylonians take vengeance uh, against the, the king that is, is uh, rebelling against them. Uh, and they destroy Jerusalem and they destroy the temple. Mm. And what they do is transplant the, the, the upper echelons of society. And, and the reason that they do the upper echelons is because those are the leaders, right? Those are the priests and the Levites. Those are the educated, you know, the rich people, if you will, the landowners. These are the ones that can raise the lower people to fight. So if you sort of cut off the head, um, you, the most people are not going to raise up in arms against a, a mighty empire. Uh, this is where people like Daniel, you know, the, the you know comes into play, things of that nature, and some you know prophets like Ezekiel. So what we have, you have this Babylonian captivity that people know from the biblical text. But when the Persians come onto the scene and they take over uh, the Babylonian Empire, uh, the Medo-Persians they have a different way of thinking. They uh, approach empire with the idea of if we allow people to go back to their original places of uh, where they dwelt, where they lived. Uh, that will be, you know, we're being gracious, if you will, and that will, and you know, they'll have loyalty to us. And what we're going to do is we're going to strengthen those local connections so that they maintain their religious uh, and to some extent their political unity, but under uh, as a province of the Persian Empire. So what happened 515 uh, BCE uh, is uh, Cyrus, the, the great, uh, and it's amazing because you can actually still see his, uh, his tomb. Uh, it's, it's just incredible when you see these things, you know, you, you see pictures of them or you, you see them in person. Uh, he has a policy that's very conciliatory. And he says, uh, all these people that the Babylonians and other people have transplanted, we're going to allow them go, to go back to their original places. And he does this for the people of Israel, uh, to the Judean or the, the Judahite exiles, whatever term you want to use. And not only that, but he says, you're going to get to rebuild the temple. Um, and eventually under uh, Darius, one of the successor kings, they will have imperial authority to set up the, the religion and the laws of that area as uh, per their convictions, you know, Israelite convictions. So this is where um, you have Ezra and Nehemiah. They're, of course, very famous. They're, they're really from a second generation because the first exiles go back with, with Zerubbabel, or as some people say, Zerubbabel, you know, <laughs> a in English. Uh, so he's appointed as the first governor, but it's, it's uh, successive generations under Ezra and Nehemiah that go back and they rebuild, uh, you know, the walls of Jerusalem, and they really reinvigorate this rebuilding process. So when we talk about the Second Temple period, scholars generally say it starts about 515, when that edict comes in, and then from that point on until the destruction of the Temple, the Second Temple in Jerusalem in 70 CE. Now, some scholars would actually argue that we should extend that because as long as there's sort of an active hope for the reconstruction of the temple, um, you can sort of, in many ways, sort of push that boundary out. Um, the, there's a great uh, Jewish-Roman war that takes place from 66 in the first century until 73. You may have heard of Masada. Uh, Masada in, in, in the land of Israel is like the last stronghold that falls. The temple was destroyed, but, you know, there are still Jews in the land, and for the next it's essentially 60 years, Jews are going to be trying to uh, reestablish the temple and reestablish uh, uh, Judean independence. And they do so for, for short periods of time uh, later on. Um, but so we're really talking about 515 to 70, and, and you might be able to extend that. 
and and the reason that this is important, not just for Jews, but I think for Christians and, and other people of uh, other monotheistic faiths, is because this is really the time in which uh, Judaism and eventually Christianity uh, begin to form. Uh, you know, people take for granted that the biblical texts were just sort of all there, you know, at one time. But this is a process that comes about. It's it's a very lengthy process, um, and uh, the consequence of the first temple being destroyed causes a, a lot of uh, impact on, on interpretation of biblical texts. Because remember, when, when the exiles go into Babylon and they're there for decades, and of course, the, many of them stay. This is, where, this is why there were Jewish communities in Iraq. And even, even today, there are Jews in Iran that have been there for thousands of years. I mean, it's incredible because these people can trace their way back um, you know, to, to antiquity. Um, and so these texts, the, the text becomes more important in many ways than the temple, even though, of course, they want to have the temple to do the sacrifices as part of the Torah. Uh, you know, the Torah is the first five books of Moses, but the text becomes um, more alive because if you're not in Jerusalem, if you're not in, in Israel and, and you're in the diaspora, if you're in, in Babylon, what do you hold on to? You hold on, of course, to what we'd say tefillah, to prayer, but you're going to hold on to a text. And the text becomes like alive. It, it, it tells you the history, but it also like gives you a way forward. How do you get to the future, right? How do you, uh, uh, how can there be redemption? And so the text now becomes very important because people interpret the text. Because before, you know, there was a chain of tradition. And now if you're cut off from that tradition, you have to look essentially to the text and say, well, this is how we're going to re-envision the past. We're going to rebuild the past. And so um, one of the questions you had, you know, when we were talking was, how did all these different groups, you know, the Pharisees and the Essenes, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, how did they come about? Well, I would say, uh, and there are many scholars that would say this, that it's really an issue of how they approach the text. Because each one of these groups is envisioning the past through a particular lens. And they're also seeing themselves like we're the true representatives of ancient Israel, of pre-exilic Israel. And so they have this, this idea, this tradition, and they're sort of carrying it forward into later centuries. Um, and they're saying, no, 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 you know, you're not doing things correctly in the temple. It should have been done this way because, you know, we have this tradition uh, and maybe we have a different calendar or we, you know, we have a different approach to this, what we would call halakha. Halakha is the Hebrew word for, um, it literally means that the way to walk, but it would be Jewish law. Like, how do you keep the commandments, like the, the practicalities? And so guess what? These groups have different interpretations on the halakha, on the halachot, on, in the plural so, form. So Dr. Juan, so Dr. Juan there, there's, a, there's a text in the New Testament where Jesus kind of ch chastises uh, these uh, <clears throat> religious leaders. And he says, the, the uh, traditions of men are making the word of God of no effect. From a second temple period, can you kind of speak to what, what could he have been, you know, talking about? Yes. So <clears throat> let me start like a traditional Jewish view mm -hmm. and then I'll sort of. Yes. So in traditional Judaism today, uh, you know, we believe, you know, that God revealed the Torah to Moses at Sinai and to the people of Israel. I think, you know, Christians, I think would agree with that. Uh, we believe also that the Torah, um, it's sort of like the constitution of the Jewish people, you know, like the constitution of the United States. So today we, we don't rule by the constitution, right? I mean, if, if you pass a law uh, on speeding or your property taxes, all those kind of things, they're not really in the constitution. 
what happens is the legislature of each state, or, the, or of course nationally, the Senate, and, you know, the, the representatives, they they uh, they they look at the Constitution and then they say, well, we have the power to to derive law, right? We have to do these practical things. And and yes, I mean, it makes perfect sense because the Constitution is not into all the details. So there are many elements in the Torah that don't have a lot of uh, precision, precision to them. They don't have the details. And I was giving some person an example this week. Um, there's a verse that, that where God tells Moses, you know, so the people want to eat meat, um, they, sh- they can slaughter it if they're not at the temple or, or at the tabernacle, the Mishkan, uh, but they should do the way that I have shown them, you know, the way that I have, you know, instructed them. I'm paraphrasing, but you can, you can look it up. Um, and so we have a tradition that goes back thousands of years that says when you have an animal, you have to, you know, you have to uh, slaughter it in a certain way because we want all the blood to drain according to the Torah. You have to make sure it's not torn because the Torah says you shouldn't eat something that is torn in the field. There are all these, you know, intricacies that are there. Um, and so the oral law is what provides us like with the details of how to do the commandments, how to keep the Sabbath, how to keep Shabbat, how to keep the kosher laws, all the details. So in the first century, you have these uh, different, they all believe that the Torah should be kept. There's not a disagreement with that. The issue is the implementation of it. So Jesus, in that sense, is having what we would call a halachic debate uh, with his, you know, his fellow uh, rabbis and Pharisees and Sadducees, because his teachings, um, you know, this is sometimes a shock to many Jews, as, w- as well as the Christians, they fit perfectly in that matrix of the Jewish world of the Second Temple. And in that world, you know, you can debate and disagree. And yes, there may be something that is, you know, needs to be corrected. You know, we have those kinds of cases today uh, in, in the Jewish world, but it's part of this process of, you know, detailing what is important and then the details. And I think that, you know, one thing that you see in the gospels, but, you know, my understanding is that, uh, you know, he's sort of concerned with the big picture. Uh, but then he makes, you know, he makes these comments, uh, and, and you can correct me where he says, um, you know, you tithe of, of, uh, of mint and cumin of, of spice. Mm-hmm. He says, but, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, the weightier matters of the Torah. And then he says something amazing, and this is, you know, because I had, I had incredible rabbis and professors, they were orthodox and conservative and reformed, but they were very well versed in the New Testament because they saw it as, as part of the literature. They're part of the literature and the experience of Jews. And he says something amazing. He says, you should have done the former without neglecting the latter. So it's not the details that are bothering him. Uh, it's, it's really, I think, you know, where the heart is, right? What's the, what's the most important? And then you build from that. Um, and so I think that that's the context is that there's in the second temple, things are still fluid mm. because you know, the temple, the first one has been destroyed. You know, the, the diaspora has not been um, resolved. There are Jews all over the place, right? I mean, there's still Jews in, in Babylon. They haven't come back maybe because for financial reasons, it's not easy to live in the land of Israel. Even today, you know, in the modern state of Israel, we have people from the United States that go to Israel and guess what? It's not easy to make it. I mean, um, you know, Israel today is known as a great uh, technology powerhouse, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a disparate society. You know, some people do very well. Uh, it's, it's like the typical story. You know, some people do very bad. It's very difficult for immigrants, new language, new culture. So you can imagine Second Temple, if you're trying to cross, you know, uh, the desert and all these kind of things, people sort of just find themselves where they're at. So in, in the minds of any Jews, um, yes, we've come back to the land, but the redemption has not happened. So, Doctor. So, Doctor Juan, um, in Second Temple period, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. Uh, there are some there are some major um, events 
that happened that kind of shaped that era, um, the Maccabean Revolt, um, Alexander's Conquest. Can you kind of talk about those things just a little bit? Yes, and it's important. I'm so glad to Maccabees because it, this is sort of interesting. It's a parallel conversation. Um, what's amazing is that you have the first uh, book of Maccabees and the second book of Maccabees. Now, oddly enough, you know, these are very Jewish books. I tell people these are like the most Jewish books that you could find. Interestingly enough, we don't have them in our canon. We don't have them in what we call the Tanakh, you know, the, the Hebrew Bible, uh, but they are in the Apocrypha. And so they, they're included in the Catholic uh, Church's canon. Uh, they used to be in most Protestant canons, at least what I understand until like the 1800s. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox churches have them. So they have these, it's interesting, they have these very Jewish books, you know, in their canon. And the Maccabees are critical because in really, um, in many ways, the, the only reason that we have a first century that we can talk about Jesus or the things that happen is because of the Maccabees. Because um, the Babylonians come on the scene, and as often happens, another empire comes, as I mentioned, that the Medo-Persians take over. And then, you know, they have their time. We have events like the Book of Esther that are very famous under that, that period of time. Um, and then we have the, uh, the fall of the Persian Empire uh, with the, the rise of Alexander the Great. And so when Alexander the Great conquers the Persian Empire, of course, he doesn't leave uh, heirs. So he divides up this uh, vast amount of territory uh, that stretches into part of India, you know, Egypt, uh, the Middle East, the Levant, in, into uh, you know, Turkey, Asia Minor, so forth. He divides it among his four generals. And these generals, they sort of fight for their own region. And two of the generals that are standing are the, uh, the Ptolemies in, based in Egypt, but sometimes they control the land of Israel. And then you have the Seleucids, which control like the northern reaches of like Syria and some of the you know, broader areas to the north. And so what happens is uh, the Seleucids eventually gain control. We call them Syrian Greeks, you know, because they're Hellenized. Uh, but whatever the case, they, they're in charge at that time um, in the, the second century BCE. So we're talking about the 100s, uh, but, you know, 100 years, uh, 165, uh, basically 200 years before the, the birth of Jesus, if you want to put it that way for people to reference. And they're, they don't have any issues with Jews per se. I, I tell people they weren't the classic uh, anti-Semite. What they wanted, though, is they wanted Jews to conform and to assimilate to their uh, Hellenized culture. And so, again, they don't have an issue with Jews being Jews. They just, why can't you look like us? Why can't you eat like us? Why can't you dress like us? Why can't, you know, hey, go to the gymnasium and, and do it naked. You know, <laughs> why do you, I mean, they want, you know, why, hey, if we put up an idol, hey, I mean, it's just an idol. What's the big deal? So for them, it's, it's enlightening, right? They want to promote this Greek civilization. And, and the, the honest truth is that there are some people in Jerusalem that are like, hey, I mean, what's wrong with that? I mean, why can't, why, why, why does Jewish conflict? you know, with modern or modernity, you can apply that to today. Right. And I'm sure you can think in Christianity, right. And in, in contemporary culture. And so there's a, there's a split in the Jewish community about, well, why can't we have gymnasiums? Why can't we have amphitheaters? And, you know, why can't we do these things? Uh, but there are certain people that are like, wait a minute, uh, we have a covenant with God. And the reason that we were taken to Babylon, you know, hundreds of years before is because we weren't faithful to the Torah, to the covenant. So now you're asking us basically to do the same thing. Um, and they don't like that. Of course, they're going to resist. And what happens is the Seleucids are like, well, we, we're not anti-Jewish, but we're anti-Judaism or anti-Jewish you know, Jewish faith. Hmm. And so the rise to the occasion when they see, of course, uh, you know, a, a Jew, a fellow Jew participating in a sacrifice 
you know, that is unacceptable. And so you have these groups of Kohanim, these priests that become essentially guerrilla fighters. You know, they become uh, insurrectionists and they take on the, the Seleucid Empire. And what people don't understand is that it took 25 years. When we talk about Hanukkah, which incidentally is, is mentioned in the New Testament as the Feast of Dedication, um, that's only the beginning. That happens very early on in the rebellion because they're able to take the temple. But they 25 years passed, they're still fighting the the uh, Seleucids. And one of the things that the Maccabees do is um, they, they forge a, excuse me, a, a relationship with the, the Romans. So they have like a relationship. Uh, they're still fighting the Seleucids. Uh, they expand their territory. And eventually they will get to the point where they can have an independent Jewish kingdom, which lasts, you know, depending on how you count for almost 90 years. Mm-hmm. And it's important for, you know, people interested in the New Testament is because Herod the Great arises from the, the end of that period, uh, and the Roman entry into the land of Israel is caused because of Jewish infighting. Because you have two brothers that should be the priest and king, and it's like, well, wait a minute, which one, why can't I be the king? And so what they do is they, they ask the Romans, who they were previously allied with, can you help us resolve this dispute? And so the Romans were, oh, you want us to come into the land of Israel and, and help you solve this? Of course, you know. So Pompey, the, the great Pompey of, of the uh, triumvirate, <clears throat> he says, sure, I'll come in. And of course, he, he desecrates the temple. And of course, the Romans never leave. But what the Romans do is they'll set up a vassal king. And this is where Herod, of course, comes into play and, and his sons. Uh, because that way, the Romans are like, hey, I, you know, I'm keeping the peace, Pax Romana. Uh, you guys have some measure of freedom. You get to keep the temple. You pay us for taxes. Um, and this, is, this sets the stage for the first century. Because this is where you, you read the New Testament or other or the writings, not just the New Testament, the Apocrypha, Pseudepigrapha. Um, and of course, the Romans are there. You have Jews that are struggling with the Romans. You have Jews struggling with uh, non-Jews, assimilation issues. Uh, and then you have this, uh, you have these independent holy men and charismatic figures, one of them being Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, and this is, from the Roman perspective, this is very problematic because they don't want anything that upsets the peace. And they don't want anything that disturbs taxes, right? And so their approach is that if somebody is saying that this person is the Mashiach, the, the Messiah, this is a problem because the Messiah implies the king, uh, the kingship of David and the restoration of independent kingdom. So what, you know, it's, for them, it's not a religious issue. It's, it's a political issue. Um, and others, you, know, you mentioned these differences between the, the different groups. Uh, not all groups believed in the coming of a Messiah. This is, I think, a mistake that many uh, people make. Not all, not all people believed that there was a resurrection. Not all people believed in, in uh, you know, necessarily the importance of angels and demons and things of that nature, because you have to look at it. If you look at the, the Torah, for example, only the first five books of Moses, there are many things that are not really spoken about. Um, you know, we read and we derive, uh, you know, Jewish, like Christian-wise, we, we sort of interpret and we, we draw faith from these certain passages, but, but certain topics were not really that important, at least on a surface level. I think that's where the oral tradition is very important. Um, so Dr. Wan, d- yes, let yes. me interrupt you. <clears throat> you had mentioned um, the, 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 the Kohan, the, the priests that were kind of warriors. <clears throat> I was doing a study and this term zealots and Sakari yeah. ca- come up. Yeah. Can you talk about, because, well, from my understanding, the Sakari actually named after their knife that they used. I don't know if that's tradition or can you speak to that a little bit? 
Yes. So generally, uh, most people think of, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, because right. I mentioned the, uh, the Essenes aren't, but they're a very important group because that's where we, you know, at Qumran, assuming that they're the same group, because even some scholars have debated, maybe it's an offshoot group of the Essenes. Uh, they're, they're very similar to what we find in the New Testament. They're, you know, they're, they talk about topics that are like strikingly similar. They talk about the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. They talk about the new they, they, they talk about the way. Uh, I, I know in the book of Acts, it, it talks about the early followers of Jesus call themselves the way. There, there's a lot of similarities. Uh, they place a lot of emphasis on um, uh, tevila, on immersion, uh, you know, ablution and so forth. Um, they're very important. Um, the zealots, people are divided in, in exactly on what, you know, their religious philosophy was. But they were a group that may have been, you know, perhaps aligned with the Pharisees. You know, they have certain beliefs about uh, you know, uh, theology that may have been similar, but they, I think they took their inspiration from like the Maccabees in the sense that we have to fight Roman oppression because Roman oppression, remember the Romans are polytheists. So from the Roman perspective, they don't have a problem with you believing in one God, as long as, you know, it's in the pantheon, right? They, they can sort of recognize that they have a sense that if you're an ancient people, there's a measure of respect that they should give to you. So they, they have like a measure of respect for, for Jews in that sense. I think that's why Christians suffered in the beginning stages, because they didn't know what to do with them. Are they Jews? Are they not Jews? Do they believe in God? They deny the you know, pantheon, etc. So the Zealots wanted an independent kingdom. The Sicarii were maybe perhaps like an offshoot of that. And they were often, you know, seen sort of as assassins. Uh, you know, they play, like, you know, they're sort of part of this revolutionary trend. Uh, that are that is wanting to overthrow the Romans. The Sicarii seem to be a little bit more uh, capable of, of uh, reacting against you know Jews that they saw that may have been a, too closely aligned to the Romans. Uh, so groups inevitably formed the basis in in the the sixties in the you know sixty six. You have to think about something. The temple that Herod started to rebuild was this majestic project, and it actually does not stop until the early sixties of the first century. So they just finished the, the temple. Just guess what? You have an economic factor. You have thousands of unemployed uh, builders, stonemasons, and all these people that have spent, you know, they had a sort of secure job. And you have Roman uh, procurators, the governors who are corrupt and taxes and just all the things you can think of that would affect the modern society. They have that. And then they also have the zealots and the Sicarii. And they're sort of saying, well, why not push now? And what happens is they take advantage of the departure of, of uh, uh, you know, certain Roman officials and they strike and, and they actually have some success in the beginning. And they're able to keep the Romans at bay for several years. But eventually, of course, I mean, the, the Roman Empire uh, has a tremendous military force and um, it takes them quite a while. But, you know, eventually uh, they're able to conquer. And as a consequence, yeah, I think scholars debate whether it was the intent of the Romans to destroy the temple or if it was sort of an act of war, you know, an accident. Because for the for the Romans, the temple was important because they used this as the point of control and also of taxes. Uh, and, and it was a sign of loyalty. What, what, the, what, what Jews would do is they had a deal with the emperor. Uh, we can't worship you. We can't, um, you know, sacrifice the foreign gods. But what we will do is we will sacrifice, we'll make a sacrifice to our God, to Hashem, uh, on your behalf, in honor of the emperor, and that will be a sign of loyalty. And the Romans are, okay, you know, we'll take that. Uh, 
you know, you guys are sort of weird, you know, you have your, you know, oddities, but we'll accept that for old time's sake. Um, because of Julius Caesar, he had, he had a very favorable view of Jews and so forth. But when, when Jews decide we're not going to offer that uh, sacrifice, that's a signal. And that's the signal to the Romans that something is up and that a rebellion has started. And so these groups are, are usually very small, uh, but they're able to sort of, you know, drive up a lot of sentiment and emotion. And then it just sort of swells until they find themselves in this war with uh, the greatest power at that time. Thank you. Thank you for talking about that. I thought it was very interesting, you know, that <laughs> there was, like you said, there's these different groups, these independent groups, you know, they, they pretty much all want the same thing, right? They, 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 they want uh, the temple, they want their traditions, they want to be able to worship freely, um, but they're all going about it differently. Um, can you speak to just a little bit about the, the writings of that period? Because you mentioned the Essenes, who, you know, have been given credit for a lot of the writings and who else or what other groups or, you know, what was going on for all that writing? Because there was a plethora of writings. There's like a, a bunch of writings from that period. Yes. So the, the Essenes are known for, uh, for Qumran, for this, this, this discovery in, uh, I think it was 1947. All these scrolls were found. There's, there's a tremendous amount of biblical text. And I think even this year or last year, I should say, there was like a discovery of another cave and some additional fragments. It's, it's incredible because, you know, before that time, we only had, we had Torah scrolls. I mean, we have some even here in our, our small synagogue. Uh, but the oldest scrolls that we had only went back, I think, maybe to the, the 9th or 10th century, if I remember correctly. So you're talking about, you know, relatively late. Uh, and then you have the Dead Sea Scrolls where you find uh, almost a complete book of Isaiah in the same basic, you know, uh, script. And if you, know, you know, if you can read this Isaiah today, you could read it back then. Uh, and then you find all kinds of a treasure trove of documents that we only knew existed in Greek or in other forms like um, Ecclesiasticus. Uh, it's part of the Apocrypha, the wisdom of Sirach. You find fragments of it in Hebrew, uh, all these different texts. It's amazing. And it shows us what, you know, the Maccabees, the Essenes didn't write all these things, but for some reason, they were keeping these things, you know, maybe as part of their library. But it's clear that they had influence on them because we see these writings, um, the, the ideas that are in these writings about demonology, about angels, about resurrection, about the Messiah or Messiahs. Because sometimes, you know, the Essenes actually seem to have multiple ones, not just one um, or, or an ultimate prophet or, you know, something like that nature. They they their ideas spread and they sort of. Uh, are embedded in different elements of what we know later in Judaism and Christianity. And so I think it goes back to what I said before. In, in earlier times, um, you know, writing was something that was more selective. It was more restricted. Only, you know, certain scribal classes would, would be able to do so. And the importance of a book was um, measured in how many times it was copied. You know, you have these other documents. That's not important. Don't worry about that one. You know, do this one. And then by the time of the second temple, they actually have Torah scrolls. According to the Talmud, there were Torah scrolls they kept in the temple, um, in the temple uh, complex. And there were slight, slight variations in the script, you know, because they, uh, they, they wanted to make sure that they kept like the master copies, if you will, because which one is the ultimate copy, right? Um, before that time, um, we have the translation of the Torah into Greek, the Septuagint. Because why? Because many Jews are living outside of the land of Israel. And it's like today, they don't speak Hebrew fluently. They speak Greek. You know, today we speak English. So the process of translating 
you now are imparting importance to that particular book. And then eventually all of the, the Hebrew will be, um, uh, let me cancel. Yes, I'm sorry about that. There was a, <laughs> we got cut off there temporarily. It's okay. It's okay. We'll, we'll pick it right back up. <laughs> um, and um, so what happens is, you know, there's, uh, after the destruction of the first temple, and I mentioned, you know, people going on to the, uh, the, uh, the Galut or the, the exile, uh, the importance of texts, you know, uh, is elevated. And there's more writing that happens. And these texts become more, you know, central to the lives of the people because they're not in the, in, the, in the vicinity of the temple. And so the reading of scripture becomes more important and people begin to sort of become more familiar, you know, familiarized with it. Because before you might rely on the priest or the, the Leviim, the Levites to sort of teach. But if, if the center of that existence has been destroyed, you have to develop another class of individuals to transmit that. And what do you have? You have scribes like Ezra, you know, he's a scribe uh, and he's also a priest, but you know, so you see the, the change in roles and as, as part of this happens, people begin to write more. People begin to, uh, you know, reminisce about the destruction of the temple, the exile, the future redemption. And there is a lot of activity that takes place as a consequence of this. Um, and there are traditions that are uh, alive that are being preserved. For example, I'm sure you're familiar with the Book of Enoch. Um, and that's mentioned very briefly in the, in the New Testament. Uh, but its ideas are are found throughout the New Testament, even if they're not specifically, uh, you know, named uh, as attributable to Enoch, you find that at Qumran, you find that in various books like um, the Book of Jubilees, uh, which the Ethiopian Orthodox Church includes as part of its canon, if I understand correctly, these traditions have spread. And in some quarters, you know, they're actually considered to be sacred texts, like, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, sacred, they're scripture. Uh, it doesn't happen in all in all quarters, but um, these texts begin to become very prominent, and uh, these ideas, you know, begin to reflect the different groups and their views. So, for example, if you're a Sadducee and you say, "Well, we have the Torah," uh, that's what God revealed at Sinai, and ultimately everything else, you know, is secondary. Well, guess what? In the Torah, there's not really an elaboration about a resurrection. You can derive it, you know, uh, you know uh, from exposition, or you can derive it uh, interpretively, but it's not like a clear statement, right? You die, this happens, you know, clearly. Uh, but, but they would say, well, we don't have any proof that there's a resurrection, so our concern is only on this life. Uh, we don't know that the soul is immortal. So you can sort of start thinking, even if you don't agree with them, you can start to see where the emphasis on certain books becomes the way that you interpret if right. you believe, if you didn't believe that Daniel was a part of the, the canon, uh, then, you know, in Daniel, you have a very clear message about resurrection, right? It's, it's like the clearest picture. Uh, in other texts, you have like allusions in the book of Ezekiel, Isaiah. But if you don't include that text as part of your canon, well, that's like another strike. Um, and then when it comes to figures like the, the Messiah or, or the Messiahs, that also depends like on an interpretive tradition, like an oral tradition. Uh, because you, gotta, you have to sort of extract it, you know, you, you have to look at the text and sort of look beyond like the plain meaning often, uh, because what does that mean, right? What does redemption mean? What does salvation mean? And so everybody is looking at these texts, and it's not that they're rejecting them. It's, it's that they have their own 
conviction and approach. And then they, well, they go on a, on a different route. And then, of course, in early Christianity, you have a particular uh, uh, claim that is made. And, of course, it follows that route. And then you have these divergences that, that occur as a, as a result. So, so you saying that brings up a thought to my mind. Uh, the, the New Testament writers, their interpretation of the, you know, the Torah, the Psalms and the prophets they were bringing interpretations that probably would have conflicted with some of Second Temple, or did it come out of Second Temple thought? Well, I would say it would come out of it. Okay. Um, I mean, if you can imagine, like, uh, I have one concern. My, um, I don't know how much battery life I have on my phone. Okay. So, we'll, we'll... Uh, but if you can imagine, like, uh, I don't know, I'll take my phone here. If, if this is like the, the first temple, and then after the, the destruction of the temple, if, if you can imagine like different, uh, you know, arrows or something like coming out, it, it's all based in this ancient tradition. But what happens is these groups are now reading the text in accordance with their views, but they're all drawing from the same source. So even if you have a disagreement on one particular issue, it's not that it's uh, like it's a greater conflict. It's like a, it's interpretive difference, right? It's right. the application. And so uh, Christianity in its early form, for lack of a better term, they're drawing from all these ideas. That's why when I mentioned like Enoch, there are so many ideas in the New Testament that are taken for granted. And only by looking at these other texts can you say, oh, that seems to be like the assumption that they're making. Or if we look even later at rabbinic texts, there's a lot of disagreement among scholars to what extent we can use later rabbinic texts to inform the Second Temple period. But I, I... I hold a view that um, that uh, you can look at these texts, uh, you know, later rabbinic texts from the second and third century and so forth, because they provide like a general view and understanding of all the different uh, ideas that are in play. Um, and so, um, you know, there's many ideas in the New Testament that they're not explained. It's sort of like the Torah. There's many ideas that you don't have a lot of detail, but if you understand the greater context and the background, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's why they didn't explain it because this is the it's assumed that there's a certain knowledge base for that. Um, so, and, yes, yes. so, so just because of you know, I, I don't want I don't want to lose you. Um, yes. th- th- this question's important and it's kind of a little off topic. Topic, but there are groups of people today that dispute um, um, Jewish heritage, you know, and they'll say, well, um, these people aren't the real Jews that are over there in, you know, Jerusalem. And these are who the real, how, how do you sort through, you know, different groups trying to claim heritage, you know, and may not be, or maybe, or how does that even work? I don't know if you've even encountered those types of uh, conflicts. Well, I think that that uh, the first thing you have to do is you have to find what it means to be, uh, you know, Jewish, what it means to be a part of Israel. And I think that um, there's a lot of emphasis by people on the the genetic side, you know, the DNA side. Uh, but you know, the difference in, in in traditional Judaism. So I have to give that perspective. Is you know, it's it's not simply a faith. It's not simply an ethnicity. It's really a combination of these things. It's an ethno-religious, you know, component. But we have, you know, Jews that are Ethiopian. We have Jews that are Moroccan. We have Jews that are Spanish. You know, our, our family heritage. We have Jews in Russia. And people say, well, how can that be? That doesn't make any sense because it's it's a people. 
and a people can absorb people from different places and they become part of that family unit. And so an ethnicity, you know, I think it's very true like in Hispanic context and, and this probably may explain it. You know, I have some friends that are Dominican and some that are Puerto Rican um, and they have some ancestry that is African, uh, but they identify as Latinos. Why? Because they speak Spanish, they have Spanish culture, they eat Spanish. I mean, it's a very different kind of thing. You know, then we have some people who are fair skinned, you know, they, they're, I mean, for lack of a better term, they're white. I mean, there's no question about that. But if you ask them, I'm Latino, I speak Spanish, I, you know, they have a shared history and a sense of a common past. And of course, in that context, it's, it goes back to the peninsula, you know, Spain, Portugal, et cetera. But I think it's the same way is that Israel was the founding place of the Jewish people um, and they spread throughout the world. And I think that one of the things that a lot of these groups that you mentioned sort of miss is that if you go to Jerusalem, if you go to Israel, it's like the United States. There are people of every color and every creed. Now, when it comes to religious practice, yes, the idea is that we have one Torah and, and we don't have the, uh, there are many different groups within Judaism today. Uh, it's usually over practice, uh, the degree of practice. But when, you know, they'll all say, yeah, the Torah was given at Sinai. You know, they, they'll agree to these things and the main institutions of identity, the, the, the Sabbath, uh, you know, these kinds of practices they'll agree on. Um, and so what we look to, you know, when someone says I'm Jewish, um, you know, from a legal Jewish standpoint, you want to look for some, you know, like, you know, quote unquote proof, you know, some document, right? They were affiliated with a synagogue or, or something, right? A marriage contract, something that, that, uh, that they have. Um, and there are ways to remedy that. I mean, conversion is, is certainly a possibility uh, and, and happens uh, quite frequently. Um, but uh, what, what you're trying to do is, is be inclusive, but also make sure that there's a, a sense of loyalty, right? It's like becoming a citizen of another country. Um, a person just doesn't come in and say, well, I'm a citizen. And it's like, oh, well, there's a process for that. Um, and, and you can still have people from different places that are coming. So I would say that, you know, Jewishness, there is a, a, a genetic uh, element there because when they've done genetic testing of different groups in North Africa, for example, uh, Jews from Morocco, and they, they, they take uh, DNA from Jews in Eastern Europe, there are elements of, of commonality there. And it's like, you know, what a person looks like is not the same thing as DNA or ethnicity. It's simply a reflection of, uh, you know, different uh, biological consequences, right? I mean, that's, that's the outgrowth or the, you know, at, at, the DNA is one component and what a person looks like can be completely different. Right. Um, so I interact with, with Jews that people would identify as quote unquote minorities all the time. Um, and yet, you know, they have this shared history and this commonality uh, with other Jews. And, and you can see that in the synagogue because what happens uh, is uh, we're, we're reading the same language. We're speaking Hebrew, the synagogue liturgies. You know, I could go, uh, I've gone to Poland. I didn't speak Polish, but I went in and I was, you know, interacting because I, I was following the Siddur, the, the, the prayer book. Um, and I, you know, I could speak some conversational Hebrew, uh, but that was the commonality. It's like they had a completely different past as far as their experience, but you had a, a, a Sephardic Jew from America and you had a Polish Jew and Hebrew and this shared history was what tied us together. Uh, and it would be the same thing if you had, you know, I have African-American friends that, you know, are Jewish. It would be the same thing. It's, it's those texts and the Hebrew and the history and everything that stems out of that that is shared. And I think that is probably the answer uh, more complicated than you may have. <laughs> no, 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 it makes, it makes a lot of sense. I think you explained that powerfully. I can't wait for, you know, um, 
uh, people to kind of hear that and, and kind of work through that. One last thing, one last thing. Um, what would you say um, is a good place to start if someone says, well, I want to investigate Second Temple, the Second Temple period, Second Temple literature, you know, where should I start, you know, so that I'm not overwhelmed, you know, where would be a good place to start? Well, uh, I hope it's not inappropriate to, to uh, mention one of my books. <laughs> but, no, it's uh, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I have, I have a lot of different books. Um, some of them are hundreds of pages. And then I started to focus in on very short, you know, easy readers, like 50 pages, uh, very short. And there's one that I called uh, the transformation of Israelite religion to rabbinic Judaism. Hmm. Uh, and the reason I think it's important, whether it's Christians or Jews or anybody else, is because very, very lightly, I touch on this process from the destruction to the importance of text and the growth of these sects, you know, these different Judaisms or these different uh, the Pharisees and so forth. I sort of show that very simply, like I, I sort of try to avoid a lot of the complexity I have other books that get into like all the details, but I think it's very short. It's easy. Um, and it just sort of wets your feet. Uh, and it says, oh, okay, you know what? I, I want to learn more about that. And you can say, okay, well then I want to go in this direction, but um, that's something that I have a great passion about. Um, uh, you can find it on Amazon. Um, you know, there's, it's actually interestingly enough. I have, I have some books that are like 600 pages and I have this 50 page book and that 50 page book actually sometimes better than the, than the big books, because I think people are looking for simplicity right first. Right. And then they don't want to feel overwhelmed. If they like the topic, then they continue. Um, and I intended it to be like a, just a very basic uh, intro. And I, I think that's a good starting place. If not, uh, you can look for uh, plenty of YouTube channels that have, you know, history of the second temple. Uh, and, you know, they might, they might, term it uh, the, the times of Jesus or something like that. But those are usually good starting points because they give you like a cultural, historical uh, and some theological background. And, um, you know, maybe I can send you some links on those for the for future reference. But yeah, definitely those, send, send me those links and send me the link to uh, that particular book, that specific book. Um, definitely would like for people to be able to check that out. Um, and and kind of those that are interested in this. Um, I've done some brief uh, teachings on this. And so this was very enlightening. Um, I felt, you know, really edified, like, wow, this is really, really good. And you really weren't able to get all the way into much of it. I can tell that there is a deep well <laughs> of knowledge about these things. And so may have to have you come back and talk about maybe some very specific things and give you some time to really pack in, or maybe have you do a class or something, you know, um, <laughs> thing i wanted to say quickly you know we have uh, we didn't even talk about like, samaritans right you know, right right <laughs> that's part of the second temple all the stuff that happens it's all based in this exciting period of time and so you can find so many topics in this uh period of time that that you could go on for you know hours and hours yeah and and now after having this conversation i do have a lot more questions that i would love and like you said the samaritans i would love to hear about you know uh, their journey and when, you know, who they are. And, um, you, you know, you mentioned uh, 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 the, the Feast of Dedications. So I had no idea that that was Hanukkah. So yeah. I, I would love to get into that deeper. So I, I've learned a lot here today and I'm pretty sure the listeners have, and uh, I'm going to, you know, encourage you guys that are listening 
um, to send your questions in. I can connect you uh, to Dr. Juan if you want to go deeper. Um, I'll have the link for his book um, in the description uh, of this podcast or on uh, the YouTube um, link also, because I, I think this was wonderful. And I really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy, busy schedule to sit with me because I'm like a can a kid in a candy store. I could keep going on for hours asking more and more questions. Um, but I know we, we can't go on for hours, but, um, first and foremost, thank you so much for coming on. Secondly, um, is there anything new that you just put out that you would like people, uh, to, to check out? Uh, yes. I came out with a book. It's called reimagining boundaries. And it's uh, the subtitle is Jews and Christians in Late Antiquity. Mm-hmm. And what I book, it's on Amazon as well. Um, I sort of raise questions about identity. So this is why I get so excited about it, because it's really all connected. And, and we think of Jews and Christians as very distinct, you know, nowadays, of course, it's, we've 20 centuries after the fact. But in the ancient world, the lines were not so easily drawn. And what I sort of propose is that there was, it's like a very nebulous, very flexible existence. And the gray areas were very, you know, uh, it wasn't black and white is what I'm trying to say. And um, I, I, I talk about how Jews and Christians perceive themselves. And I use some examples like from modern history to show why I think this is important, because both groups often make assumptions about the other. Uh, but if you look back at history, there was a lot more interaction uh, and it's an, it, it had to be, you know, because of the Second Temple. This is like the what gave birth, right, to to these two different uh, entities as we know them today. Uh, so that I'm excited about that. Um, I have a lot of audio books that are related to that. But that book, Reimagining Boundaries, I think is a uh, it might be a little bit more technical, but I think it, it raises a lot of good questions. And so I'm, I've been excited about uh, that one that just came out a few months ago. Awesome. 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 Well, again, Dr. Juan, thank you so much uh, for uh, your time. Um, please guys check out, um, his material. Like I said, I'll have the links, um, in, uh, the comment section, both for the podcast and for the YouTube. Um, if you're catching this on either one, um, wow. Anything that you would like to leave with the folks before we sign off? Uh, well, I apologize for the interruption. My, you know, my phone was dying and I, I apologize for that. Uh, thank you so much for the privilege. As you can see, I get excited talking about this. Uh, I would just say one thing um, for me, uh, interfaith dialogue between Jews and Christians is extremely important. Uh, this is why one of the reasons I talk so much about the Second Temple, because it relates so easily to the New Testament and Christian, you know, Christianity. And I think that communication, like we talked about offline, if you, if you can have dialogue, that's like a tremendous benefit. I think it's something that that God uh, is pleased with uh, and both communities can learn from each other and they have uh, they have common goals. Like you said, in many in many cases, you know, it's just we may have different ways of approaching something. But that's something that I I truly uh, am grateful to be part of. And uh, just thank you so much for the opportunity. And and I hope to be in contact with you in, in the future. Yes. Oh, well, definitely. That will definitely happen. And so uh, thank you guys for listening. Um, again, I'll have the links for uh, Dr. Juan, his books and how to get a hold of him. Um, great, w- wonderful man of God. Uh, really enjoyed this time. And so remember to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. God bless. This podcast is supported by our generous monthly donors. Thank you.